For those of you who don't know me or my wife Lynn, we've been at Calvary Chapel a long time. And uh, we, God has told Calvary Chapel a few years ago that he wanted to impact a region in Africa through us as a church. And so we are in Rwanda typically six months of the year, five, six months of the year, and we're here. So if you say, who is this guy that thinks he's been around forever when you have never met him before? <clears throat> That's us. And now we get quite comfortable at greeting people and saying, so when did you start coming? They say, two years ago. So this is good, and we're excited and happy to be here with you to bring God's word. Greetings to our friends in Rwanda who are there, and uh, we bless them as well. We're family. So Father, I thank you for your love and mercy and your grace to us. I thank you that... You have ordained it that we should be family. You called us and sent your son to redeem us. And we have the privilege of saying yes. And when we do, you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, set up your home inside of us. I say thank you for that. And Father, you want, we, the world needs to meet you. The world needs to see Jesus and meet Jesus. And that's your plan. That's why the Holy Spirit is in us, so that the world can see Jesus. Thank you. And Father, now I ask you to give glory to your name, Holy Spirit. I give myself to you. Use these words in this time for your glory and for your honor. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. The title of the sermon is, Many are called, few are chosen. And um, as soon as we say that, there's things that trick in your mind, things that go off, am I chosen, am I called, how do I fit, where am I, what's going on, what's happening, and um, we want to look at God's word to to see what he's saying to us, for some reason I got a throat, there we go, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, come to me, All who are weary, and he's saying, really you are all weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the Son of God who came to this earth and he's talking, and primarily when we read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is training his disciples. That's his focus, that's his objective. Sometimes there's thousands of people eavesdropping in on the discussion, but his focus is training these guys so they understand what's supposed to happen. When Jesus came to this earth, after he was baptized and the Holy Spirit was manifest in him and through him, he entered the world from his identity as Son of God. The world wasn't happy about that because he didn't look right. Um, God was going to establish his kingdom through the Jewish people, But they didn't like what he looked like because he was looking not very pretty, not handsome. Uh, He came from the wrong family. He didn't have a bunch of money. Uh, He didn't have influence. He had no political connection. He was born in a bad part of town. 
uh, you didn't even want to want to go there. He was a nothing. He was a nobody. You didn't even want to be seen with him or identified with him if you were anybody. If you were anybody important or significant, you wanted nothing to do with this Jesus. The problem, of course, was that he was the Messiah. He's God himself. And people had decided this is not what we want. This is not the God that, that we want to serve. Because people wanted Jesus or wanted the Messiah to give them favor, to give them money, to give them honor, to give them a lot of things. And so they didn't want this Messiah who was this, what they deemed as a nothing. And then we read on the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus teaches his disciples. It's a beautiful, beautiful teaching. And he says, this is what it looks like for a spirit-filled person to live on this earth. And right from the beginning of that sermon, he says, you can't do it. It's impossible for you to do it. That's the point. Because if it was just an improved version of me or you, nobody would be too interested. It needs to be born again. You need to be completely changed. And Jesus demonstrated what that person looked like to be filled by the Spirit, to be holy, to be pure. And that was the plan. And most of the time, 99.9% of the time, we didn't get it and they don't get it. And most people, truthfully, don't care. That's how it was then and that's how it is now. So there's something that happens, and it's, it's called a, a virus. Anybody ever heard of a virus? <clears throat> How do we catch a virus? Well, there are some people who are carriers of the virus but don't know that they carry it, and there's others who know they have it and choose anyway to go and cough and sneeze everywhere. And, but viruses get spread. But they get caught. You see, viruses are not taught. They're caught. They're caught as we're with people and doing things. And there's a thing called an idea virus. There's things that we believe that are not true. And this is Satan's area. He works with the idea virus. He gets in our brain and he says, tells us what is true. And when we believe it, we've got it. And so these viruses are caught throughout history. It started in the Garden of Eden when he infected Adam and Eve with a virus that said God didn't really love them or care for them. But Satan could give them everything they wanted to have life pleasurable, and they could be God. They swallowed this virus and shared it with all of us. And Christ came and said, that was a virus here. Let me show you what it looks like when you live virus-free. See, then you can meet freely with lots of people and hug and all these things, and it's great. But Jesus says here, take my yoke upon you. I see you're all weary. Now, Jesus is talking primarily to the scribes and Pharisees, the leaders of the church at the time, who had made all the rules about how you should live. They took God's law and added to it. They always added to his law. So when, for example, it says, uh, whatever the law was, thou shalt not kill. They said killing means you actually physically killed somebody. As long as you don't kill somebody, then you're okay. And they twisted it. Jesus says, that's not the point. So Jesus says there in the Beatitudes, You have heard, but I say unto you. Somebody said, but I say to you. Six times, somebody said, but I say to you. And if we study that, we discover every single time the laws that really we have issue with, so does Jesus. Because Satan has twisted them to mean something we're never meant to mean. And we believe the lie. We swallow the virus. Once we've done that, then we say, Oh, God is so harsh. He's so rigid. Why is he this way? Because we've swallowed the virus. So we need to go back to the word and ask the Holy Spirit to show us. So Jesus is preaching and teaching, and thousands of people are listening. The Pharisees are there with him, 
in the crowd. The scribes are there. It's not in a church setting like this. It's probably more of a public forum. The government people are there. Everybody's there listening to this renegade, this uneducated guy. I mean, who does he think he is, right? Uneducated guy, no position, no title. And, and he's teaching everybody and talking like he knows what he's talking about. And they observe that it seems like he actually does. And so he says, I can see all you people that are trying to obey all these laws, these religious rules that are laid down, you are very tired. You are weary. I can see that. And he says, why don't you try it my way? Hmm? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is easy. Easy not as in not not heavy, easy as in you can carry an awful lot of weight when you put on his yoke. And it's pleasant. I don't know about you, but I think most of us are wired that way. When we can accomplish something, when we can do a work and look back and say, wow, that's incredible. That's an incredible thing that happened or, or a feat of strength. Or, or it, it's just we take great satisfaction in it. And that's what Jesus says. When you come and do it my way, you're, I'm going to accomplish amazing, amazing things in you and through you. And you're going to look at it and say, wow. And people are going to look at it and say, that makes no sense because we know you. And this is so beyond anything that you could ever do. But yet it's happening. It's because Jesus says, this is my plan. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. The question is, are we going to go to Jesus with our ideas of what holiness looks like? Or our our strategies and our plans that tell us what looks like? Are we going to come to you as as spiritual leaders and say, okay, these are the ways you know you're holy. You do this and don't do that. Or are we going to go to the Lord and ask him what he has for us, what he has through us? So Jesus is talking to all these people, and Jesus and, and the disciples, the Pharisees don't like him, period. So then we'll skip over to Matthew 21, verse 28, and Jesus says, but what do you think? Beginning of a parable, what do you think? So Jesus is forever getting us to think. What are you thinking? Well, I remember, I hear stories sometimes of our, our, our son one time, well, I hear stories, yeah. Our son one, one time who, who who said that when alcohol, for example, is on something and it burns, the thing doesn't burn, so therefore isn't that neat? So he decided to try it, and he pours alcohol all over his arm and, and lights it and says, see that? Look at that. It doesn't even hurt me. It's amazing. Until the alcohol started burning off, and then, oh, there was heat all right. He felt a lot of heat. So he said, what were you thinking? Hmm? What were you thinking? Where was your head? He wasn't, Okay. He wasn't. He was listening to his brother who said, it's not going to hurt, really. Ah. Who do we listen to? What are you thinking? How do we get into situations? We look back at it and we say, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but it sure doesn't feel like it right now. What were you thinking? And so it is with things of the Lord and our Christian life and our walk. We say things and do things and, and teach and preach things and advise things. And later on, when we look at what the result is, we go, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? And so God tells us to challenge everything and reason everything. And Jesus says, what do you think? And when we're control freaks, we don't want people to think. We want them to swallow everything we're telling them. And now we're going to skip over to Matthew chapter 21, to the, the topic of the day. We're starting in verse 45 of 21. We're getting to 22. 
And here it says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, so this is after he told the parable of the precursor of what were you thinking, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Jesus was saying to the scribes and Pharisees, you guys have made all kinds of rules for people that you want them to listen to. You have declared that this is God's rule. And Jesus says, it's not. It's not. You're misrepresenting God. You're telling people what it is that God is saying, but what you're telling them is bogus. You are misled. You are hypocrites. And he boldly says that to these people. These guys that have all the power on the earth. They can throw him in prison. They can do whatever they want. And he's saying to them, you guys are hypocrites. You don't know what you're talking about. Because, and even now, when we say, oh, the God of the Old Testament is all about laws and rules. He's, he's rigid. Well, wait a minute. It's the same God we have in the New Testament. He doesn't change. But our view of the laws is we're believing a lie. That they're not good for us. So marriage and divorce, for example, just to pick a topic. Moses said that if a husband wanted to divorce a wife, he had to give her a certificate of divorce. Okay? So then people say, look at that. The guy can do whatever he wants and he's, he can be mean and, and God is in favor of it. Not at all what was happening. What was happening in the Old Testament is the men were throwing away their wives because for whatever reason, oh, you burned the bacon. Or, I like it straight, now it's floppy. Whatever. So that's it, you're gone. And they'd throw them out. And part of their, their, the laws and the culture was that if your husband divorces you, well, we assume it's for adultery, and you had to be stoned to death. I mean, that's pretty serious, but that's literally what was happening. There's chaos because of a totally disrespect. The husband's job was to protect his wife. And here he's throwing her away. So God makes the law and says, through Moses, says that if you want to divorce your wife, you have to give her a certificate of divorce. Because then the wife would have a certificate. So as she's walking around on the street and people want to stone her, they say, wait a minute. My husband divorced me because of the bacon. Well, not bacon. The Jews, they didn't eat bacon. So forgive me for that. It was <laughs> Turkey bacon, I don't know. <laughs> so she could show them their certificate and then they would not be able to stone her. So it was to give order to where there was chaos. It was to protect the women that the men were not protecting and they should have. Then we get to the New Testament and the Pharisees are teaching on divorce. And they say that a husband must write a certificate of divorce for his wife. And Jesus says, nowhere did God say he must. Nowhere. You're totally twisting God's law. And you're saying, look at how nasty he is. And then they challenge him, well, what did Moses say? Why could we divorce? And Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart. Jesus always addresses the heart. And the Pharisees had come up with neat little rules to get around it. It's like this. Oh, I promise I'll do all the dishes. Really, I will. Then you don't. Oh, I had my fingers crossed. So they came up with all kinds of neat little things where they could declare themselves righteous, declare themselves holy. But they weren't. They were wicked. And their hearts were deceived. And they were believing lies and they were pontificating lies and telling it to the people. And Jesus says to everybody listening, including the scribes and Pharisees, 
These guys keep telling you what to do, but they're wrong. They're wrong. They're misrepresenting God. And you need to think about it. Think about what they're telling you. Think about what they're teaching. Think about what you believe. Why do you believe it? Why do you act how you do? And then you need to respond in a different way. So Jesus' parables was a brilliant, brilliant way of communicating deep truths, but also of smacking the leaders without smacking them. You know, everybody knew what he was doing. Everybody knew what he was talking about. But he wasn't blatantly in your face giving him something they could hang a hat on. And so he had one of those parables we have in, in Matthew chapter 22. And I, and I love this. And, and for me, I've struggled over this. Many are called, few are chosen. Then when I, when I have sin in my life or something goes wrong, well, am I, am I chosen? Am I called? How do I fit? Who decides when I'm saved? Uh, do I decide? Does God decide? Uh, can I lose my salvation? Can I not? Whatever. I'm not going to talk about all that this morning. It's a good discussion, but not one to have with the general population. But you need to know that your salvation comes from the Lord. And your holiness, holiness is the Lord's holiness. There's not one of us that's holy except for Christ, who declares us holy and righteous. And so this is the concept Jesus is teaching and, and, and bringing to the people. What do we believe? What are the idea viruses that are in our brain? And as we read a story like this, so Jesus tells a parable. What is it that pops up in our head? We sang, for example, that God never gives up on me. And there's some people sitting here while we sang that. And he says, that's not how I experience it. He gives up on me. It's, it's an idea virus. It's not true. Because of your grace. Because of your love. Because of his love, because of your grace, it's because of his faithfulness, not mine. And then we think of something where we've messed up. You say, ha ha, you've messed up over there. You see, you don't fit in here because you've got to fix that. So then we think we've got to try and fix this problem so that we can be in line with God's grace. Do you see the absurdity of that thinking? Grace is unmerited favor, not because of anything we've done or deserve it. But the lie that we believe is that I have to get myself straightened out so that I can deserve or earn God's grace. It's a lie. You can't deserve it or earn it. But when you're all messed up, what do you do then? When you keep sinning, what do you do then? And Jesus says, come to me. Humble yourself and tell me about it. And I will put my grace on you and your mercy on you and declare you to be righteous. And then we tell people about it. We confess, we repent, we live in community, and it's terribly humbling. Terribly humbling, and we don't want to do it. So we try and find a way to not do it and still be righteous and holy. He says, it doesn't work that way. If you're not real, you're not real. You've got to be real. And so we have communities of relationships, two, three people together, where we, we talk about that. And Jesus says, you, you think sinning is when you've done the deed. And then we read the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus says, I'm actually not talking about that. You see, that's another lie from the Pharisees. It's another idea virus you have that sinning is doing the deed. And Jesus says, sinning is you wanting to do something. 
Long before you do anything, it's sin. I want to. I would like to. Now it's sinning. We watch a television program and something happens and there's things that go inside of us and our wanter and our desirer is kicked up. Why is that? That's sin right there. We want to. So as we close those gates, places where we know we're going to be triggered with wanting, don't do it. Something I found interesting, <clears throat> idea viruses. I asked Mr. Google about idea viruses. Ah, Mr. Google can help you. And uh, the, the crazy thing with Mr. Google, as you well know, is that your computer has history. And your Mr. Google and your computer know what you like to look for. They, it knows what you like to look for. And your phone, smartphone and everything. So whatever you're looking for, and secretly you're thinking of maybe of seeing something that you don't want to admit that you want to look at, Mr. Google picks up on that. And gives that to you. And all of a sudden you find yourself in crazy places on the internet and say, how did I get here? The heart is wicked. Mr. Google knows. Mr. Google knows. So I asked Mr. Google about idea viruses and it, it, there's books you can buy on how to use idea viruses to your advantage. And the books are talking about marketing your idea, your strategy, to get people to adopt your idea and your strategy and market it for you. You see? And you build a brilliant business through an idea virus. Just got to get somebody to buy into whatever it is you're selling. And they'll do all the marketing for you. Well, this is what Satan does. He puts an idea into our brains and he goes for coffee. Because we're busy doing all his work for him. We buy into his idea viruses. So let's not. Okay, now we're going to look at to the story of the day. Jesus telling the parable. Jesus spoke to them again in a parable saying, The kingdom of heaven, where Jesus is king, king of kings, lord of lords. Everybody wanted Jesus to be king. They wanted to be in his kingdom. But then they said, no, we don't really want to. And so he's telling them what his kingdom is like. Kingdom may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent out his slaves to all those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. And he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I prepared my dinner, my oven, my oxen, pardon me, and my fatted livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their own way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Jesus is talking here directly to the Jewish scribes and Pharisees, to the Jewish people. He's saying, this king invited you to come to this wedding feast. And you said, no, thank you. Now we're busy. We got other things happening. No, we're not coming. And as we study, we discover that Jesus came to the Jews first, Jews first, but the Jewish nation officially rejected him. Then he said, okay, you reject me, I reject you, but now my appeal goes to the individuals, to the individual person, be you Jew or Gentile. And so Jesus is speaking to the nation of Israel, but he's speaking to the individuals also. Then he says, and he says, in other two's business, and the one, the rest seized his slave and mistreated them and killed them, which is what happened to God's prophets. 
But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set the city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who are invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main house and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Jesus is saying, Go get the Gentiles. The Jews are not coming. Get the Gentiles. Go get anybody, everybody, to this wedding feast. And this would have enraged the Pharisees and scribes, because they were the special chosen, exclusive elite people, and now Jesus goes and sends the invitation to Gentiles? Ah. These slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all that they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless, as he should have been. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. What is going on? A guy doesn't have the right clothes. What is going on? Well, let me tell you something about the cultural things in wedding. When you go to different cultures, it's always interesting to go to a wedding. And you learn a lot of things about cultures. An interesting thing we found in Rwanda, we've been to quite a few weddings there, and we find that the bride and the groom are actually secondary to a wedding. They're sitting off on the side someplace as the whole thing is happening. Isn't that interesting, right? So what's the deal? Why are this? Because it's all about the families coming together. It's all about, yeah, it's because of them, but they're not focal like it is here. No, it's different. So it's interesting. I find things interesting in culture. Now, in the time when this was written, the weddings would be held at the, the, the girl's house, as they are in many places still today. So the wedding feast would be at the home of the girl who's getting married. But this is the king who's getting married. And when it's the wedding feast at, of the king's son, it's at the palace. And what would happen is that when the king's son was about to get married, they'd, everybody in the nation would get a save-the-date notice. That date in August, August 3rd, save the date, there's the wedding feast, everybody, and everybody in the nation knew they would all be invited. Every man, woman, and child is invited to the wedding feast. And culturally, when Jesus is speaking to them, they knew instantly that that's what would be happening. Everybody's invited to the wedding feast. And so then what happens is the, the king sends out the invitation. So now the wedding is ready. In other words, you got the, the appointment. The wedding's on August 3rd. August 3rd is the best day to have a wedding, especially 1974, because that's when, you know what I'm saying, we got married. Anyway, so he sends out the invitation to the wedding feast. So now what happens is they prepare the food. The, the oxen are killed. There's massive, massive food that's prepared everywhere. Now they don't have fridges, so it's now. Now is the wedding feast. Now is the time to come. And so everybody had to save the date, and now the servants go out to, throughout the nation and say, okay, here we go. The food is ready. Everything's ready. Let's go eat. And they say, I'm, no, I'm busy. I'm busy. No, thank you. I got no time. I don't care. Who is this guy anyway? No, I just don't care. But somebody comes in and doesn't have the right clothes. Well, culturally, this is what happened. Oh, one little detail. When the king would go now 
to the home of Tony, Lisa, and family. Tony, Lisa, and family, stand up for a second. So the king would come to you, and he would, when the messenger would come, everybody up, Mia, you too, you're part of family, right? Thank you. So you always have a hesitant one, right? So what the king would do is he would have for each of you a robe. The king would send a robe that was made specifically for each of you, that would fit each of you specifically. A royal robe sent to you by the king. And each of you would put it on. And each of you was given an invitation with the king's seal on it. It said, this is your the seal. You are invited to this wedding feast. Each of you, Mia, you, Maya. Yeah. Mia, thank you. You would get one too. It's not just, oh, dad has one. No, no, you would get one. Not just dad has clothes. No, you would get a robe that fits you. A beautiful robe. So the king has prepared everything. And he says, here's your robe. Here's your seal, your invitation. Come. The food is ready. Come. Thank you. When they get to the palace for the meal, for the wedding feast, as they get to the gate, there's a servant who meets you as you arrive. The servant, lowly speaking, can't challenge anything. He would wash your feet. And somebody arrived at the servant where you washed the feet and you did not have the robe and you did not have the seal. But the servant has no business challenging them. No business challenging them. And in, in Psalms 108 verse 9, it says, Moab is my wash bowl. So here's the wash bowl of washing the feet. And over Edom I shall throw my shoe. God is talking about lowly, lowly, lowly people. Servants who are here. they got no business challenging anybody. After the feet are washed, what you do then is the wedding feast. You go to another person who now anoints you with oils and perfumes so you smell pretty. And again, if you came without the clothes or the seal, he had no authority to challenge you. None. But now you go in and you sit down with everybody else. And the king comes in and he says, what do we have here? I sent you my robe. Where's the robe? I sent you the royal seal. Where's the royal seal? And then he may say, well, look all the things I've done for you, huh? See how I've helped you out in the kingdom, and I, I did all these things for you, and I deserve to be here. He says, "Where's the robe? Where's the seal? I, I preached in your name. I prophesied in your name. I built schools and churches in your name." And he said, "I didn't ask you what you did. I asked you where's your robe and your seal." And you think that you can come based on your own robe? You're going to come in here and feast at this table from your own robe? From what you've done? Because you don't care? And he says, no. You take him out and you throw him into the pit of hell. And God is saying to us, 
I have sent you a robe. The robe of righteousness, which is Jesus Christ. I've sent you a seal. The Holy Spirit who is in you. And then he says, every time when you mess up, you have to remember this. You come to me and I'll wash you. And I'll clean you. And so that as you come in, we wash the feet, we put on the perfume, because you got dirty today. You did something today. You thought thoughts today. I'll wash you. I'll clean you. But understand who you are. And he says, many are called. Few are chosen. What he's saying is, I've called every one of you. And I sent you the robe, and I sent you the seal. But if you reject them, then you're not chosen. It's just that simple. If we reject God's robe and his seal, then he says, I don't choose you. And he says, I don't choose you because clearly we have not chosen him. The robe of righteousness, the seal of the Holy Spirit. And so when we have the robe and we have the seal, how do we then live? Do we then try to live by our own works or by whatever we do? And that's how many of us are. And that's where a lot of these rules come from. There's nothing you and I could do to become pure and holy. But Jesus puts his robe on us and God says, you are pure. You are holy. So here you are. You have been called. Are you chosen? It's like making a a sport team, a a baseball team, right? You remember when you're in elementary school and we're going to choose teams now. And you said, am I going to get chosen? Am I going to go, ah, right? Some kids, when it's time to choose ball teams, don't even go out to the playground. They stay inside. And they say, why did I ever get chosen? Chosen for what? For the ball team. You were inside. You didn't want to be chosen. You didn't want to be called. So that's our place in it. But God says, I want I want you. I know who you are. I know everything about you. There's nothing you can hide. I know that. And if you will be honest with where you are, with who you are, if you will be honest and bring that to me, I'll wash you and declare you righteous and holy and pure. It has nothing to do with where you go to church or sit or the things you do or don't do. Where is your heart? Father, I thank you for your love and mercy. I thank you for your grace that is so wonderful, abundant, overflowing. And Father, where the enemy wants to take my words and twist them, where I've misspoken, bespoken, whatever, Holy Spirit, will you adjust these things? Delete them from memory banks. Do whatever you need to do, Father. I want your holiness and your righteousness, Father. Help each of us to be gracious, kind, and gentle, loving, affirming, challenging in love, questioning in love. Thank you, Father. Amen.